0: This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Letting in the Light. In the first half, we'll hear Dr. Gary Barton from his 2013 BYU devotional address, The Light Through the Dark Glass. Then in the second half, Dr. Tyler Jarvis talks about that's how the light gets in. Now Gary Barton, Associate Dean of the BYU College of Fine Arts and Communications at the time of this devotional.
1: In considering what I might say today, my mind kept turning to what the Apostle Paul said in his first epistle to the Corinthians. For now we see through a glass darkly. Over many years I have thought a great deal about this statement and its meaning. The word seeing is often used to describe the action of visually or mentally perceiving or discerning. It can also mean to perceive or discern spiritually, and how we see is critical in shaping who we are, the choices we make, and who we become. Research on seeing and perception is conducted in a number of different fields. In the visual arts, we spend a considerable amount of time looking at things, and we frequently discuss the process of seeing and carefully work to develop our abilities to see in an artistic context. It is clear that though we may see much in common, we as humans often see in vastly different ways. To illustrate this, I invite you to carefully look at these four works of art. And as you do so, consciously consider your response. This first work is executed in blue-black ink on paper and is entitled Six Persimmons. It was painted by the Chinese monk Muqi in the 13th century. Muqi was a Zen monk who lived during the Song Dynasty and worked towards a highly reduced form of brush painting. It is said that Zen Buddhism, a school of thought that highly valued meditation as an avenue for enlightenment, was the most stripped-down form of Buddhism and greatly influenced the artist's views. This painting became famous for its skilled and minimal brush strokes and painterly simplicity and was considered an unprecedented artistic innovation. The second work is a 17th-century Italian Baroque watercolor painting on parchment. In the Baroque period, naturalistic and highly detailed paintings flourished, and still-life painting was often symbolic, teaching moral lessons. This work, entitled A Bowl with Peaches and Plums, is by the artist Giovanna Garzoni. The fact that Garzoni was a very successful female artist made her quite unusual for her time. She was also one of the first women to focus on still-life painting. This third work is by the French artist Paul Cezanne. It is an oil painting entitled Ginger Pot with Pomegranate and Pears and was completed sometime around 1890. Cezanne was considered a post-impressionist and was one of the most important painters of the second half of the 19th century. His brushwork, planes of color, and explorations of geometric simplicity laid the foundation for the transition from 19th-century artistic ideas to a new and very different 20th-century art world. The fourth and final work that we will look at is a painting entitled Still Life Portuguese from 1917. It is an oil painting by Robert Delaunay, a French artist who, with his artist wife Sonia and others, co-founded the Cubist-influenced art movement called Orphism, which emphasized the optical characteristics of bright and bold colors. Delaunay played a key role in establishing abstraction as a stylistic expression and was one of the earliest non-representational painters. Though all of these pieces of art are similar in that they are paintings of still-life subjects, they are also significantly different in terms of how the subjects are seen interpreted, and presented. There were numerous factors that influenced the decisions of each of these artists, factors that both enabled and limited their ability to see. As you looked at these paintings, how did you see them? Did you make connections between the paintings? Perhaps you responded with greater interest to some than others. Were you indifferent? What are the reasons you responded the way you did, Did the minimal information that I provided affect how you saw the individual works? They are all wonderful pieces, and I hope you enjoyed them. Just like these artists, our vision is influenced by many factors that ultimately impact how we think, feel, and act. Each of us has strengths, limitations, and personal lenses that filter and color how we see and perceive. In many ways, it is important that we as individuals see things differently. It allows for insight and innovation. It enables us to learn and benefit from each other, and it also tends to make things more interesting. This certainly is something I've learned in my marriage—just ask Jennifer. We live in an incredible time, with so much available to us and so many possibilities. At moments, however, it can be extremely challenging to see our way clearly. With the abundance of information, perspectives, attitudes, feelings, criticisms, forces, and beliefs that surround us, it can seem as if we are seeing through a glass darkly. Years ago, when I was an undergraduate art student here at BYU, I was offered a job working as a metal chaser in a local bronze foundry that cast and finished sculptures for artists. Given that I had virtually no experience with The bronze casting process, I was somewhat surprised I was offered the job and also a little apprehensive about what it would require. But after being assured that I would receive training in the techniques required for my particular responsibilities and anticipating that this knowledge might be useful in my future as an artist, I accepted the job. Initially, one of the most daunting duties for me was welding. As a result of the bronze casting process, there were set sev- uh, frequently several different parts of a sculpture that needed to be welded back together. Given that there is a long list of real dangers associated with welding and the fact that I had no idea what I was doing, this part of my job made me a little nervous. Ignorance and danger can be a bad combination. As I mentioned earlier, I was promised I would receive training, and I did. My supervisor gave me instructions on the use of the welder, on safety, and on welding technique. He even demonstrated the process for me. But being told or even shown how to do something isn't the same as doing it, let alone doing it well. For my initiation into welding, I was encouraged to practice with some bronze scraps under the guidance of my supervisor. As instructed, I properly prepared the work area and tools and carefully adorned myself with all of the necessary safety gear, including thick leather gloves, a special leather jacket, and protective welding helmet with a glass lens. As I readied myself to begin, I pulled the helmet down over my face, and it was completely dark. I couldn't see anything through the dark glass lens. The lens on a welding helmet is very darkly tinted in order to protect the eyes of the person welding from the extremely bright light produced by the welder. How could I weld if I couldn't see? I lifted the helmet and, turning to my supervisor, shared my dilemma. He patiently explained that in order to see through the lens, I must rely on the light produced by the welder. I must learn to use the light. What a revelation! I again checked to make sure everything was prepared, lowered the helmet, and as perspiration trickled down my face, I started the welder. With a flash, I could see. My vision wasn't clear, but I was able to see well enough to learn. I actually failed miserably that first welding attempt. I melted a big hole in the piece of bronze, and unfortunately it wasn't the last time I made a mistake. However, with effort, practice, and the tolerance of my supervisor, I was able to improve my skills as a welder, and in the process I came to better understand the light and to use it more effectively to see through the dark glass lens. In a sense, the lens became clearer. As we are confronted with difficult choices and decisions, especially those related to our eternal progress, We must prepare ourselves, act in faith, and learn to use and rely on the light. As we do so, the personal lens through which each of us sees can become clearer, and we will be better able to make decisions that will bless our lives and lead us to Christ. There are two important sources of light that I would like to discuss—the light of Christ and the Holy Ghost. Each of us has been blessed with the light of Christ. The scriptures teach that the light of Christ is the Spirit which giveth light to every man and woman that cometh into the world. It is the light which proceedeth forth from the presence of God through Jesus Christ to fill the immensity of space. And the light which is in all things, which giveth life to all things, which is the law by which all things are governed. It is the light which shineth and enlighteneth your eyes, which is the same light that quickeneth your understandings. The light of Christ is sometimes called the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of the Lord, or the Spirit of God. It is also referred to as our conscience and is given to every man and woman that they may know good from evil. It is the light by which we may judge, and it can be a powerful source of inspiration. President Boyd K. Packer taught, "The The Spirit of Christ can enlighten the inventor, the scientist, the painter, the sculptor, the composer, the performer, the architect, the author, to produce great, even inspired things for the blessing and good of all mankind. This Spirit can prompt the farmer in his field and the fisherman on his boat. It can inspire the teacher in the classroom the missionary in presenting his discussion, it can inspire the student who listens, and of enormous importance it can inspire husband and wife and father and mother. This inner light can warn and guard and guide." Unquote. The light of Christ also helps to prepare people for the message of the gospel, and it leads them to repent, be baptized, and receive an even greater source of light, the gift of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost and the light of Christ are two distinct influences, but in addition to the constancy of the light of Christ, the Holy Ghost may, from time to time, manifest himself to any man or woman, regardless of their circumstances, honestly seeking truth about the Lord and His gospel. In this sense, the Holy Ghost works in concert with the light of Christ. Though we might make choices that lead us down very dark paths, the light of Christ continues to abide with us. President Harold B. Lee explained that the light of Christ never entirely goes out unless we commit the unpardonable sin. Its glow may be so dim that we can hardly perceive it, but it is there for us to fan into a flame that shall burn brighter with understanding and with knowledge. With permission from a good friend, I would like to share a story he told me recently. This friend was raised in the Church, and while young, he was baptized, given the gift of the Holy Ghost, and ordained to the Aaronic Priesthood. During his teenage years, he made some friends that had values dramatically different from those he had been taught in his home and at Church. Over a number of years, he made some poor decisions and became involved in behaviors that were deceptive Destructive and not aligned with the teachings of the gospel. As a result, he didn't enjoy the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost and turned from much of the light that was available to him. As he approached mission age, he continued to be involved in these poor behaviors, but also began to have questions about the direction of his life. One day, while under the influence of an illegal substance, he had an experience, a very powerful spiritual experience which he recognized as the Holy Ghost. Although under surprising circumstances, that experience provided clarity for him and ultimately changed the course of his life. He repented, served a mission, and was married in the temple. He has a wonderful family, a powerful testimony, and is an active and contributing member of the Church. Now, Some may dismiss or make light of my friend's experience when hearing it, but I was perplexed. How could the Holy Ghost speak to someone who was not only disobeying commandments but was also at that moment under the influence of a mind-altering substance? Perhaps we can understand how this is possible when we comprehend that the Holy Ghost can work with and through the light of Christ to manifest truth and light. As many of you are aware, the Holy Ghost is a personage of spirit and the third member of the Godhead. As such, He plays a unique role and can be a great blessing in our lives. He is a messenger and a witness of our Father in Heaven and His Son, Jesus Christ, and testifies of the truths of the gospel. He is the source of spiritual gifts. He can reveal the will of the Lord in our lives. He acts as a cleansing agent to purify and sanctify us from sin. And as the Comforter, He brings peace to our souls. Through His power our minds can be enlightened, we can be blessed with new ideas, and we may know the truth of all things. The fullness of the blessings given through the Holy Ghost are only available to those that receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, which is bestowed by the authority of the Melchizedek Priesthood after a person is baptized into the Church. After receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, a person has the right to its constant companionship and the blessings associated with it, if he or she keeps the commandments and remains worthy. We frequently call the spiritual manifestations of the Holy Ghost inspiration or personal revelation, and these communications may come to us in a variety of ways, including impressions, promptings, thoughts, and feelings. Most often, the still small voice of the Holy Ghost whispers to our hearts and minds, and brings feelings of peace, assurance, and confirmation. The Holy Ghost can direct us in all of the important aspects of our lives if we are prepared. Learning to recognize and rely on the Spirit, however, requires faith, humility, and continued practice. Rather than receiving clarity on all matters simultaneously, we typically receive guidance on specific questions. Though many things are unclear to me, I recognize that I have been blessed on countless occasions through the power and influence of the Holy Ghost. I also understand the importance of continually seeking to better understand and use the remarkable gift of light that comes from Him. Please allow me to share another experience. Many times throughout my life I have felt prompted that I should pursue my interests in art and develop my abilities. As a result of these promptings and as a result of careful and prayerful consideration, Jennifer and I agreed that I should pursue graduate studies in art after completing my degree at BYU. When the time came, I researched numerous programs from across the country, pondered options, fasted, prayed, and selected several programs to which I submitted applications. Given all of the factors, this was not an easy task, but we were excited about the possibilities. After waiting several months, I started to receive letters from various programs I had applied to. Good news, I had options. Now Jennifer and I faced the dilemma of making a decision. We carefully reviewed the pros and cons of the individual programs, and we prayed, earnestly seeking divine guidance. On an occasion during this period of time, I walked into an office here on campus and noticed on a desk a letter with the logo for The Ohio State University. Immediately, a distinct thought popped into my head, saying, you should apply there. I hadn't previously considered Ohio State. I thought about it for a second, but it was quite late in the year to apply to programs, and given that I already had offers from other schools, I, dis- I dismissed the thought. Within a few days of that experience, I was walking down a hall here in the Harris Fine Arts Center and saw a poster. You guessed it. The poster featured an Ohio State logo. Again, the thought immediately popped into my head, saying, You should apply there. I started to get the idea, so I immediately found a computer, did a little bit of research, and, with some disappointment, discovered that the graduate application deadline for Ohio State had passed. The following day, I ran into one of my BYU professors, who was and still is an influential mentor. He told me that he had been looking for me and explained that he just got off the phone with a colleague from the Ohio State University. The colleague had called, seeking recommendations for potential graduate students for his program. My mentor then explained that he had recommended me and, if interested, I should give the professor a call. Long story short, it turns out that I made the call and things worked out very well. I was offered a most advantageous situation in an excellent art program. The lens was very clear for me at that moment. We accepted the offer and had a very challenging but valuable experience. I don't know what would have happened had I attended a different school, but I did know in that moment, as I do today, that our Father in Heaven watches over us and will guide us in important things when we seek His direction. Several of our Church leaders have reminded us that the Lord will speak to us through the Spirit in His own time and in His own way. Answers to prayers or other righteous desires may not come immediately or may not come how we expect them. Exercising faith, we must submit ourselves to the will of the Lord and be patient. We should also understand that personal revelation is not constant and will not be given on every matter. Elder Dallin H. Oaks cautioned quote, the Spirit of the Lord is not likely to give us revelations on, every, on matters that are trivial. I once heard a young woman in testimony meeting praise the spirituality of her husband, indicating that he submitted every question to the Lord. She told how he accompanied her shopping and would not even choose between different brands of canned vegetables without making his selection a matter of prayer. That strikes me as improper. I believe the Lord expects us to use the intelligence and experience He has given us to make these kinds of choices." Elder Oaks also taught, Revelations from God, the teachings and directions of the Spirit, are not constant. We believe in continuing revelation, not continuous revelation. We are often left to work out problems without the dictation or a specific direction of the Spirit. That is part of the experience we must have in mortality. Fortunately, we are never out of our Savior's sight, and if our judgment leads us to actions beyond the limits of what is permissible, and if we are listening to the still small voice, the Lord will restrain us by the promptings of His Spirit." Some may question the purpose of this mortal condition where the lens through which we see can be dark and unclear. They may ask, why does it have to be this way? Why is it that we have to so often struggle through the uncertainty, confusion, conflict, and pain of this world and this life? I don't think there is a simple way to answer this question completely, but please let me share a few ideas. We have been taught by holy prophets and through Scripture that we are spirit children of God and have great potential, even divine potential. Our Father in Heaven loves and has a plan for all of His children. It is His desire and work for all of us to become like He is, to be with Him again, and to have joy. For various reasons, many that I'm sure we don't comprehend, it was critical for us to gain a mortal body and to live in a state where we are separated from Him a state where we have experiences and challenges that are unique to mortality and important for our growth. I suggest that this life is the only way to learn and develop important and necessary attributes of the divine. It dawns on me now, as I look back on my experience welding in the bronze foundry many years ago, that the darkened glass lens of the welding helmet not only protected my eyes from the bright light of the arc welder, but actually enabled my vision it allowed me to see understand and do things that i would not have otherwise been capable of, given the physical limitations of my eyes perhaps this can give us some insight into the need for a dark glass in mortality especially as we recognize uh, the importance of cultivating the qualities of faith hope and charity that the apostle paul also taught about in his first epistle to the corinthians As we prepare ourselves through righteousness and learn to rely on the light of the Holy Ghost, we have an increased ability to see clearly those things we need to know and do in our lives. Again, Elder Oaks has taught us, As faithful members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we have a distinctive way of looking at life. We view our experiences in terms of eternity. As we draw farther from worldliness, we feel closer to our Heavenly Father and more able to be guided by His Spirit. We call this quality of life spirituality. To the faithful, spirituality is a lens through which we view life and a gauge by which we evaluate it. Each of us has a personal lens through which we view the world. Our lens gives its special tint to all we see. It can suppress some features and emphasize others. It can also reveal things otherwise invisible. Through the lens of spirituality, we can know the things of God by the Spirit of God. As the Apostle Paul taught, such things are foolishness to the natural man. He cannot see them because they are spiritually discerned. How we interpret our experiences is also a function of our degree of spirituality. Some interpret mortality solely in terms of worldly accomplishments and possessions. In contrast, we who have a testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ should interpret our experiences in terms of our knowledge of the purpose of life, the mission of our Savior, and the eternal destiny of the children of God. President James E. Faust said, Often we do not have even a glimpse of our potential for happiness and accomplishment in this life and in eternity because, as the Apostle Paul said, now we see through a glass darkly but the lens can be lightened and become crystal clear through the influence of the Holy Ghost. The Savior promised us that the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance and guide you into all truth. Each of us has our own unique way of seeing, which is influenced by many factors. There may be times when our paths seem very unclear. We will likely make mistakes. But as we repent when needed, are faithful, and learn to recognize and rely on the light that is available to us through the light of Christ and the Holy Ghost, the path that leads us to the presence of our Heavenly Father will be illuminated, and our ability to see with an eternal perspective will be enhanced. For those who struggle to see and feel they walk in darkness, our Savior has said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. As we follow our Savior, darkness will fade, and step by step we will receive that light, which groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. I testify of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
0: You've been listening to Finding Center, our theme today, Letting in the Light. We just heard from Dr. Gary Barton. After the break, we'll return for Dr. Tyler Jarvis, and that's how the light gets in. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Letting in the Light. Next, Dr. Tyler Jarvis, a professor in the Department of Mathematics, with That's How the Light Gets In.
2: I'd like to tell you about an important problem that arises in many settings called the traveling salesman problem. A traveler must visit many destinations to sell her goods or make her deliveries. And her problem is this. What route will be the fastest way to get to all the destinations? A poor choice could mean she travels many times farther than she would if she made a good choice. Now, obviously, this problem is important to companies like UPS, the U.S. Postal Service, Walmart, and Amazon. For example, according to Wired Magazine, UPS has roughly 55,000 delivery trucks running each day, and if each driver could choose a route that shaved just one mile off the daily trip, that would save the company $30 million each year. And This problem is not only interesting to companies involved in delivery and travel. The traveling salesman problem also has applications in computer chip manufacturing, DNA sequencing, and many other areas. So here's a diagram of the situation for three destinations. One of the possible routes our traveler could take is to first go to city C, then to city B, and then to city A, and then home again. Another possible route is to go to city B first, and then to city C, and then to city A, and then home. Or she could again go to City B first, but then to City A, and finally to City C, and then home. Altogether, there are six possible routes in this situation. So to solve the traveling salesman problem with three destinations, I need only compare the six routes and see which is shortest. Now With four destinations, I must check a bit more—24 possible routes. I can still do that. With five destinations, we have 120 routes. I am too lazy to check all of those, but it is not hard to write some computer code to do it for me. You may have noticed that the number of things to check is growing rapidly. For ten destinations, we have over three million possible routes to check. A lot, but not impossible. Now, For twenty destinations, it grows to 2 quintillion 432 quadrillion, 902 trillion, 8 billion 176 million 640 thousand. This is a little too big for my laptop to check in any reasonable amount of time. In fact, if my computer could check a billion roots per second, it would still take 77 years to check all the possible roots. At current energy prices, just the electricity for the computation would cost roughly (laughs) $675,000. Now let me reassure you, it may look like I'm going all mathy on you, but don't worry, I won't make you compute anything. You don't need to remember any of these numbers, and there won't be a quiz at the end. So stay with me for just a bit longer. My point is, even for just 20 destinations, we have way too many possible routes to check in any reasonable amount of time. The bad news is that in many real-life situations, we have a lot more than 20 destinations. For example, a UPS driver makes an average of 120 deliveries each day. For 120 deliveries, there are so many possible routes we couldn't store them in, all the, in the memory of any computer in existence, not even if our computer's memory comprised all the atoms in the universe, or in a Google universe as big as ours. That is a one with 100 zeros after it. And yes, I spelled it right, it's not the same as the search engine. <laughs> if we could find a way to deal with the memory problem, we'd still have to check all the routes. If we had as many processors as particles in the universe, and if each processor could check a trillion roots per second, it would still take more than a Google years, far, far more than the age of the universe. The Clay Mathematics Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts, has even offered a $1 million prize to the first person who can find an algorithm to solve the traveling salesman problem in a reasonable amount of time. Many other important mathematical problems suffer from similar difficulties. We can't seem to solve them exactly because they are just way, way too big. These sorts of problems show up in many aspects of our lives, curing diseases, preventing accidents, reducing pollution and traffic jams, and building smarter robots. They're also important for better understanding how the world works, modeling biological and chemical processes, modeling populations of people, animals, and bacteria, and understanding how galaxies form, and many other aspects of our world. With all these problems, as long as we insist on getting a perfect answer—the one and only very best route—we are utterly paralyzed by the size and complexity of the problem. You could say we are paralyzed by perfection. But despite their complexity and size, we still need to solve these problems. So let me tell you how to become unparalyzed. And because this is a devotional talk, you know that I will also use this as a metaphor for something spiritual. The first step is to admit and accept imperfection. For many of these hard problems, the traveling sale, like the traveling salesman, if we really want a good answer in a reasonable amount of time, we must make a compromise. We must make do with an approximation and admit some chance of error. I am something of a perfectionist, so this is difficult for me, but if I am willing to accept an answer that is only close to the perfect one—a good answer, but not the perfect answer. An answer with some error in it. As soon as I give up on perfection, something amazing happens. We get a very good approximate solution to the traveling salesman problem very quickly. In fact, not just very quickly, but blazingly, astoundingly fast. Now, this solution is not a perfect solution. It will not win the Clay Math Million Dollar Prize because it is not exact, but it is very good. And if you need a better solution, we can do that too. Not perfect, but better. Similarly, in our own lives, to avoid being paralyzed by perfection, we must admit and accept imperfection. This requires honesty and humility. We can't try to cover up our ignorance or our mistakes. We must admit them and learn from them. In fact, I only know a few things perfectly, among those that the Father and Son live and love me and you, that the Book of Mormon is what it claims to be, and that this Church is where the Lord wants me to be. I also know with a perfect knowledge that for now, on this earth, we are all imperfect, both in knowledge and in performance. But Christ's Atonement can bring us to perfection if we allow it to. The first step to applying the Atonement is to admit and accept our imperfection. We are all imperfect, but it is not always easy to admit that. Being a mathematician often forces me to admit what I do not know. Julia Robinson, the first woman elected to the National Academy of Sciences and one-time president of the American Mathematical Society, was once required to submit a description of what she did each day to her university's personnel office. This is what she wrote. Monday tried to prove theorem. Tuesday tried to prove theorem. Wednesday tried to prove theorem. Thursday tried to prove theorem. Friday theorem false. Now. While a star like Julia Robinson may find her mistakes after only a week, people like me usually need a lot more time than that to figure out our mistakes and even more time to get the courage to admit them. And It is not only our knowledge that is imperfect. Just as the computer has limited ability to execute the programs given it, so we have limited ability to execute what we know we should. To survive and succeed in this life, we must admit and accept that imperfection and be patient and understanding with imperfection in ourselves and others. As Elder Holland told us at General Conference this April, Be kind regarding human frailty, your own as well as that of those who serve with you in a Church led by volunteer mortal men and women. Except in the case of His only perfect begotten Son, imperfect people are all God has ever had to work with. That must be terribly frustrating to Him, but He deals with it. So should we. End quote. And It is not only human weaknesses we must accept. Sometimes perfection just isn't possible in our finite, imperfect world. When my wife was a missionary in Germany, she and her companion decided they were going to keep all of the mission rules exactly—all of them. They got out their white handbooks and the additional list of rules for their own mission and sat down with their blue planners to schedule everything into the week. First, wake up at 6.30. Spend one half hour for personal scripture study, one half hour for companion scripture study, one-half-hour for exercise, and so on throughout the day. But somehow they couldn't make it all fit before the required bedtime of 10.30. They tried and tried, but just couldn't get it to work. They only figured out why it was so hard to schedule when they added up all the hours necessary to keep every rule each (coughs) day—25. The realities of living in our limited, imperfect world mean that we have no choice but to make do with an approximation admit and accept imperfection. The second step is to work hard to get your best approximate solution to your problem. As I mentioned before, accepting imperfection transforms many important mathematical and computational problems from being unsolvable in the lifetime of the universe to being solvable now on current actual computers. But the solutions still require deep thought and hard work. In the same way, admitting and accepting imperfection in our own lives allows us to find imperfect but workable solutions to our personal and spiritual problems. But these solutions also require deep thought and hard work. As the Lord told Oliver Cowdery after he had tried unsuccessfully to transla- translate the plates, quote, You took no thought save it was to ask me. You must study it out in your mind, end quote. And Brigham Young said, quote, Whatever duty you are called to perform, take your minds with you and apply them to what is to be done." Not long ago I had a student that told me he hated math and he was no good at it. He was sure he would not understand the math in my class, and he was a little angry because he needed my class for some requirement or other. But with a lot of encouragement, he reluctantly promised me he would do something he had not done before. He would not only answer all the homework exercises, he would really make sure he understood all the steps in each problem why that step was the right thing to do and why it worked. He agreed to study it out in his mind. At first, this was painful to him because he had never done math this way before. He really had to fight his frustration and impatience. He wanted to say, just tell me what to do and let me get this over with. But he kept his promise. He read and reread the explanations in the book. He came to my office hours and asked me lots of questions questions about how and why things worked. He asked the TAs and his classmates the same questions, and as he continued to work at it, he began to understand, for the first time, a little bit about how math worked and why it is the way it is. Partway through the semester, he confessed to me he actually liked the class. By the end of the semester, he not only earned a decent grade in the class, he was really excited about what he had learned. He even wanted to take another math class. He was no longer bad at math. His hard work and deep thought had transformed not only his attitude, but his ability. But this is not easy. My former neighbor, Elliot Butler, said it well Quote, To learn is hard work. It requires discipline, and there is much drudgery. When I hear someone say that learning is fun, I wonder if that person has never learned or if he's just never had fun. <laughs> there are moments of excitement in learning. These seem usually to come after long periods of hard work, but not after all long periods of hard work. But like it or not, it must be done. Hard work and deep thought are the only way. As the Lord said to Oliver, you must study it out. So our steps so far are, first, admit and accept imperfection, and second, work hard to get your best approximate solution to your problem. Now, it is not enough to find an approximate answer to our problems. We must also act on that approximate, imperfect answer. This is hard because we know our answer is not perfect. That might scare you. It often scares me. But we cannot let our fear of imperfection, our fear of making a mistake, prevent us from acting on our best approximation. As Paul told Timothy, God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind." Quote. When I was in graduate school many years ago, I was lucky enough to be admitted to a school with some famous faculty members. I had done pretty well in undergraduate classes, and I thought I was pretty smart. So when it came time to choose classes and teachers, I chose some of the most famous teachers I could. One of them was especially impressive. He was a Fields Medalist, the nearest thing in mathematics to a Nobel Prize winner. Other students spoke of him with awe, both because of his brilliance And because of his reputation for criticizing students. When I heard how he had berated a student for being both lazy and stupid, I determined I would never give him cause to criticize me like that. I decided never to ask him for advice or help until I had exhausted every other means for solving a problem. The result was he never criticized me, but I also never learned much from him. I spent three years in his classes and only spoke with him for a total of about 45 minutes. Another of his students had no fear at all. He would go to this professor almost every day to ask questions, and he was criticized regularly, but he never seemed to care. I thought he was completely crazy, but he went back almost every day and got his questions answered and learned a lot. It took me several years after graduation to realize I had wasted the opportunity of a lifetime. This other student wasn't so crazy after all. He got many hours of personal tutoring from one of the world's greatest mathematical minds, and I got… I got to graduate school safely without being criticized." The Lord is pretty clear He wants something more from us than this. He has given us many talents and opportunities. He wants us to face our fears and do something good with all He has given us. Consider His parable about the rich nobleman who entrusted his wealth with his servants while he went traveling abroad. You know the story, so I will skip to the end. He which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I was afraid. I was afraid, and went and hid thy talent in the earth. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which hath ten talents, and cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness." Now Think a moment about that servant with one talent. This is a very severe punishment. After all, he took good care of that money. Not one cent was lost. Yet the Master not only chastised him and took his talent, he cast him into outer darkness. The Lord does not care about not messing up, not losing what we have. It isn't enough to preserve what He has given us. He wants us to get up and do something with it. Like the one-talent servant, when we are afraid of failure, we are more likely to fail. When I was a teenager, I worked two summers as a lifeguard and a swim instructor. One of the things I learned in that job was that people's fear of water is usually their greatest obstacle to successful swimming. A person learning to float on his back, for example, when he is afraid, will instinctively try to sit up, which causes him to sink. To float, he must relax, put his head back and his legs down, and then he can float on his back with very little effort. The real key is learning to trust that a little water splashing in your face does not mean you are drowning. It may not be what you imagine to be perfect floating, but it is good enough. Even going completely below the water is not failure if you remain relaxed. A gentle hand motion quickly brings you back to the top. But as soon as you become nervous, you try to sit up, and you sink. Similarly, when my kids first started ice skating lessons, they were unable to stand on their skates without help and clung to the little walkers that were available at the arena for non-skaters. Even with the little walkers, they fell often. So they were surprised when the first thing the instructor did was take away the walkers and teach them to fall. They practiced falling over and over. One of my daughters complained that falling was the one thing she could do without lessons or help. (laughs) But once they had finished their falling lesson, almost as if by magic they could skate. And they didn't even fall much after that. By overcoming their fear of falling, by embracing the fall, they were able to learn to avoid it and we are able to try new things without fear. The most important example of all is the plan of salvation. The entire plan depends upon our engaging in a very dangerous enterprise. Recall that Satan's plan was to guarantee that bad things would not happen, that we would all be safe, that we would all return to our Father after our time on earth. This plan was rejected not only because Satan wanted all the glory for himself, but more importantly because it would not work. It just wouldn't work. We cannot become like our Father in heaven unless we learn for ourselves to refuse the evil and choose the good. We must act for ourselves and choose for ourselves, but as Lehi tells us, we cannot do this unless we are enticed by two opposites—unless we have the option to fail. Not only must we have the option to fail, but we will fail. We do fail often. The most miraculous proof of God's love for us is the Atonement of Jesus Christ. The purpose of the Atonement is precisely to allow us to recover from our many failures. He knows we will fail despite our best efforts, and He has provided a way for us to be freed from our sins, to be healed and returned to Him. We show our gratitude for the Atonement when we use it to overcome our fear of failure, trust in Him, and act on our best approximation. Recently our academic vice president, Brent Webb, reminded us of something Elder Holland taught us way back when he was president of BYU. He told us that we hit what we aim at, Quote, so not failure but low aim would be the most severe indictment of a Latter-day Saint fortunate enough to be at BYU. Let me say that one more time. Not failure but low aim would be the most severe indictment. I should have listened more carefully to President Holland before I went off to graduate school. I hit what I aimed at. I graduated successfully without criticism from my teachers. Technically, I did not fail, but boy, did I aim low. Fear of embarrassment, fear of failure, fear of being considered dumb by someone I thought was smart. Fear made me aim low. Don't make that mistake. Aim high. Now, please don't misunderstand me. When I say aim high, I do not mean aim to be successful in your career. I do not mean aim to become rich or famous or powerful. Those might be things that happen along the way for a few of us, but if they are your target, you are aiming way too low. DNC 121 tells us that if we aim at these things, if our hearts are set upon the things of this world, and if we aspire to the honors of men, we may be called, but we will not be chosen. No, when I say aim high, I mean we must aim to develop our talents and use our opportunities the best we can to build His kingdom, bless His children, spread His gospel, care for the needy, heal the sick, discover truth, teach that truth, and bring ourselves and our families back to live with Him. We will make errors along the way. Aim high anyway. Not failure but low aim would be the most severe indictment. Our steps so far are admit, and admit imperfections, two, work hard to get your best approximate solution, and three, get up and act on your best approximation. Finally, an essential step after we try and fail is to repeat the cycle and improve on each attempt. Some of the most powerful methods for solving hard mathematical problems are what we call iterative methods. You start with an approximate approximate answer, sometimes just a random guess, but you use that guess to generate a new answer, a little better. Then you take the new answer and apply the method again and again until you get as close as you need to the correct answer. There certainly are situations where these iterative methods don't work, but in many settings they are both the fastest and most robust ways to solve problems. Iteration is a powerful tool in our lives as well. We repeat the three steps—accept, work, act—over and over again. As an example, let me tell you about my son Spencer, who likes to run. His first official race, when he was eight years old, was a 3K in Kiwanis Park. He did not do nearly as well as he had hoped to do. He really had to push hard to stay with the leaders, and by the end he just didn't have the strength to keep up. He was disappointed. The next two days he was really sore. He was forced to admit he wasn't as fit or as good at running yet as he wanted to be, but during that week he pushed himself harder in our daily run than he had in the past. He worked hard to prepare for his next attempt. At the next race, one week later, he was worried he wouldn't do well but he got up and ran the race despite his fears. This time he, had to push hard to keep, he still had to push hard to keep up, and he still didn't stay with the leaders for the whole race, but he was able to stay with them for longer, and his time improved a lot. Some of that improvement was from working harder in his daily workout, and some of it was from really running hard in the previous race. He was still a little disappointed that he didn't do as well as he wanted to, but he repeated the process. Again, he was sore after the race. Admitting he didn't know as much about how to prepare for the race as he wanted to, he asked his uncle, an experienced distance runner, for advice on how to train better. Again, he worked hard all week. Again, he felt nervous before his next race. But again, he put his fear aside, ran hard, and did better than the week before. All through that first season, he repeated the process. He had a race almost every week, and each race he improved his time a lot. Each race also motivated him to try harder in his daily runs and to learn more about running. And not only the preparation, but the races themselves helped make him stronger for his subsequent races. By the end of the season, he had cut almost three minutes off his 3K time and become one of the race leaders that others tried to keep up with. Spencer was successful that running season because he followed the iterative method for pursuing perfection. Each week he admitted his imperfection, he worked hard to improve, and he braved his fears to make another attempt. Then he repeated the process over and over again. This same process, this iterative method, will bring each of us closer and closer to perfection. We will not actually reach that goal in this life, but we will be better than before. We will get better and better. Let me conclude with the chorus of Leonard Cohen's song, Anthem. I know that Cohen may not have originally meant this verse exactly the way I interpret it, but for me it captures very well the idea I am trying to express today. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That is how the light gets in. Our bells are cracked, but let us ring those bells that still can ring. Stop worrying about your failure to achieve perfection. Perfection is not possible in this life. Instead, embrace the light and healing power of Christ that comes in through our cracks and imperfections. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen.
0: You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and recentering. Today's theme was Letting in the Light, with thoughts from Dr. Gary Barton and Dr. Tyler Jarvis. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org/findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.